Chapter 9 of Ronald and I, or Studies from Life by Alfred Praetor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 Our Professor. No, he was no professor in the recognized sense of the term, not a bit of it. Neither can I tell you how he acquired the title, unless it were in recognition of his original wit. He was simply my factotum, or Man Friday, ready for shooting, fishing, gamekeeping, or gardening, as the emergency of the moment required. He could neither read nor write, but what are trifling details like these in comparison with cuteness? Institute Atrippos for originality and native wit, and Matthew would even now, at the age of seventy, pass with high honours but the examination must be strictly viva voce and not allowed to wander into the region of conventional knowledge matthew i said this isn't work as i bestowed a kick upon an object that lay prone upon the lawn when it ought to have been digging at our garden border no sir but it's preparing for it was the prompt reply for myself i was knocked out of time though i felt i was clearly within my rights Fancy a man, roused from a peaceful siesta, being ready with the retort of such preternatural smartness. Unhappily, Matthew had two failings by which his career was handicapped. He was always lazy and sometimes inebriate. Of the former he never repented, so long as I knew him. The latter he was always repenting of and always repeating. And the stage of repentance was the more acute and the more grievous at any rate to his neighbours after a bout of drinking he would wander through the house with his hands on the pit of his stomach as if the seat of his iniquity lay there moaning in a dreary exasperating way the lord forgive me i'll never be drunk again how can you expect him to said his wife in a tone of the bitterest sarcasm every time he repented he took the pledge anew the consequence was his bosom was garnished with blue ribbons his decorations he called them for he never cast off one when he assumed another but regarded them as an old soldier does his medals traces of many a scar and many a conflict in which unhappily he always fell decorations said his wife fine decorations call em rather signposts along the road to perdition if you stick to em all when you're buried they'll have no trouble in fixing your whereabouts sometimes when he was particularly exasperating she would take the law in her own hands my head's swimmin like a teetotal matthew would say pathetically the very last thing it ought to swim like retorted his wife a woman with a ready wit but i'll soon make it do so and with that she would take him in her strong arms and give him a twist as boys do when they give its first impetus to a top after which she would wait patiently for the result the result was of course collapse as soon as the primary impulse had run down whereupon she would catch him up when he was on the point of falling and bear him off to repentance and bed matthew's dialect was unique i question whether a specialist could have reproduced it in its integrity if only because it never reached finality but was always in process of development for myself i had studied it for years and could never get any nearer towards the discovery of its principles every day he was startling you 
with some new combination as a rule strictly ungrammatical but often a reversion to some lost or more accurate phraseology for example let i go would you like i to do it the latter a reproduction as near as may be of the latin formula visne ego faciam a still more perplexing characteristic of his speech was that he used many of his words in a variety of senses cuss thy nigglin weeds he'd say and cuss my nigglin toothache phrases in which the adjective or participle carried an appreciable meaning even when he didn't add the word darned as an explanatory gloss but when he transferred the phrase a minute afterwards to a splendid crop of potatoes in which my inexperienced eye could detect no possible fault i was all at sea again and had to ask him to explain himself i means them small he answered with a contemptuous sniff at my ignorance but matthew you told me just now that nigglin meant darned and so it do darn small looking at me as if he thought the epithet suited me as much as the potatoes when matthew had pneumonia and lay in extremis his friends came round to console him with the assurance that he would die at the turn of the tide what time matthew do begin to turn they said at seven o'clock exactly whispered the inveterate old humorist and it was not till the next morning they discovered that he had defrauded them of one whole hour of pleasant anticipation in his sober moments matthew was a brilliant story-teller in both senses i fear though his brilliancy now is limited to occasional flashes of wit the following is one of his best reminiscences i have selected it out of many because i have since discovered that it was founded on fact not only was it authenticated by a clergyman in whose neighbourhood it was enacted but it was told and retold by one of the actors in the tragedy though he had passed to a land from which no testimony is available long before i heard the story at second hand from matthew twas in december eighteen twenty four when it happened so joseph told i this at any rate was matthew's recognized formula is true he were a great liar and i didn't take no count of the main of his tales for he'd tell you most anything he would especially if he'd seed the price of a glass of fourpenny for tellin it but in proof tis true they tell it to the childer at night-time when they was obstepolous and wouldn't go to bed just for a joke like to frighten em to sleep twas in december eighteen twenty four not likely he were to forget it for twas the year of the great gale the outrage they calls it hereabouts when the sea broke clean over rudge and washed away the old church all but the chancel joseph never took kindly like to the new church they built for an higher up in the valley out of reach of the sea twas too spick and span he said to suit he all white and glittering like chalk though twere built of the best portland stone and a sight prettier to my thinkin than the tumble-down old barn that's all that's left of the old un but the visitors and gentry they takes after joseph and for one what goes to see the new church there's hundreds who bring their vittles and sit and pint the old un studyin all the tombstones and what's writ on em mostly shipwrecks it be for i doubt if there's half a dozen stones in the old graveyard but what tells of some one or t'other who was drownded at sea 
in that one gale of twenty-four twas thousands that perished and all that was found on em joseph buried there when the sea gived back her dead and he could get at his graveyard though to be sure naught was left but the chancel so you could scarce say as how poor souls they got a decent burying and anyhow twas at that very month just arter the outrage that one price a farmer he called hisself was livin high up yonder among they hills that you can see faint like in the distance nigh again they rocks a bleak and dreary place it were at the best of times and a job to get at it at all when a strong sou'wester were blowin and most every november it do blow cruel strong along they high downs when no cover to speak on it except scraps of fuzz and heather and a small thorn-tree maybe now and again with his branch all leanin to the nor'east as though twas an old man a-holdin out his arms for shelter and the road to bryce's farm were no better nor a sheep-run a godless man price were as you'd expect with a man who lived so far from all we decent folks and he never comed nigh to church pass on he said didn't suit he and he weren't a-goin to trapeze over hill and dale not he when chance twas he'd find no passin and no service at t'other end and if passin went to he as he did now and again he'd find the door shut in his face and for vittles not a bite nor a sup of anything did he offer him though passin was a rarin at that kind of work sunday after sunday he'd look in regular nigh upon dinner-time and savour by his nose he would where there was a chance for in of something enticin not but what twere bad for the childer where he did settle hisself for twas little of the puddin was left for they when he'd had his turn on it howsomever twas there price lived with hisself for his company so no wonder strange tales got abroad about em twas said though joseph never give no heed to it that three wives had entered his doors and never one of em had come out again no not for burian and joseph must have known on it if so be they had seeing he were clerk and sexton and gravedigger let alone the head of the choir twas thought that he'd buried em in another parish more nigher to the house he lived in and with a better road long which to carry em but lord save us twarn't nothing of the kind one mornin early in december twas nine of the clock maybe or thereabouts for joseph had just been out to pen the sheep in the churchyard a tall fine old gentleman called at the door and he knowed by his dress twere the bishop not that he cast eyes on him before for our youngsters are confirmed away off there bain't enough of em to claim a bishop for themselves but he knowed twere the bishop what with his gaiters fitting as though they'd growed to his legs and his broad hat as shiny as if you'd smoothed it with a flat iron good morning to you says he as pleasant as any one could say it you be clerk of the parish bain't you true your worship he replied and sexton too says he right you be and gravedigger and choir-leaders well for he thought it no sin to make the most to em of his preferments well says he i want you for a burian this night at eight o'clock a burian your worship says he and at night yes and three on em says he all in one grave well it do sound martial strange your worship but tis you that says it and not i 
you'd better go at once he says and begin the grave for you won't have none too much time to spare on it especially as i want it done on the quiet so to speak and you mustn't take no hand to help you and meet me punctually as ever as at eight o'clock at farmer's prices up the hill and bring a lantern and the parish hand beer along with you he hadn't much time to ponder on it as you may suppose with that grave to dig and no one to give him a helping hand and martial hard work he found it too for the frost set in early that year and the ground that hard that young and lusty as he were he found it a job to get the pickaxe into it howsomever he did get undone and at eight o'clock he was at farmer price's door and was opened to him by the bishop himself and so hand in hand as you may say he and the bishop they went into the kitchen and there right facing em packed up agin the wall like so many old grandfather clocks stood three coffins with a piece of glass lead in em to show the face and a dead woman in each close handy they were to em when he took his meals or smoked his pipe and when he felt a bit lonesome so he told joseph he'd go up to em and ask em how they did and if they felt comfortable and fresh as piant they were too only a bit shrivelled like as twere an apple in april perhaps twas the heat of the kitchen or maybe some stuff he'd put in along with em anyhow you could see their faces right enough and tell they was women take em down said the bishop farmer price'll lend you a helping hand and we've none too much time to get em back to the churchyard and bury em joseph himself could scarce do naught but stare at em to think that that godless man had kept em there one on em for nigh on ten years never thinkin not he that he was keepin em tied hand and foot to this world with never no chance of a resurrection till he took it into his wicked head to let him go and there they'd a been for ten years longer for just so long as he lived if bishop himself hadn't got wind on it and come down right away to bury him anyhow they did get decent burial the three on em at last for they had bishop and joseph and farmer price though i don't take no count of he cept that he helped to lower em and fill in the grave but joseph were right glad he were and so he told i to see the rare tug he had in dragging the three dead women up ill and down hill across the churchyard for joseph never gived in no helping hand you may take your oath on it though he did make a show of pushing at the beer whensoever the bishop looked his way didn't no one ever hear on it yes they did but they didn't take no count on it our people bent over wise about religion and things were done in those days that make a rare potheration now besides you see a bishop were there and he made a sight of difference twas a rare fine burying people thought with a bishop to put you underground though tis true he hadn't his fine grand toggery on and his girt white sleeves the actors in our humble drama are dead and gone the bishop and price and joseph have each in his turn been followed to the grave only with less eccentric rites but the story of the farmer's happy family still lingers in the village and is told and retold round many a cottage hearth under the quaint but significant title of price's menagerie p s the professor himself came round to-day for a pipe of baccy sir if you have such a thing about you so i have utilized him to correct his own proof-sheets there bain't nothing wrong in him master fred this to a man of sixty so fur as i sees 
only you says gived where i says gid but tain't no odds like enough they'll guess what you means whatsoever you write down thanks matthew for your tribute to my clearness of expression End of chapter nine